The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Well, it's so good to see you all today. How are you guys feeling? Good. Glad that you are here. This is a big weekend for us here at our church. Uh, we, as you heard, launched our Saturday night service last night and um, had a huge uh, just celebration. There was standing room only, people sitting on the floor in the back to help us uh, launch our Saturday night uh, last night, a great party. And so if you missed it, I want to invite you this upcoming Saturday, come check it out. Um, and there is rumor, all right, it's actually more than rumor, this upcoming Saturday night, there's going to be Flanagan's ribs after the service. That sounds pretty good, right? two people in here that likes Flanagan's ribs. I mean, it's like Flanagan's ribs. That's like a really good thing, right? Okay, just <clears throat> nine o'clock. You're not awake yet. Okay, here we go. So, um, so much to celebrate in our church. Uh, this weekend, we got a worship night coming up this Thursday night. And also last, uh, last week, I just before we jump into our series today, I just wanted to celebrate this. Last week, we challenged our church body if you haven't found a place to jump in and serve, find a place to serve. And I feel like we continually underestimate our church family because regarding number of positions, serving positions and opportunities that were requested last Sunday, uh, last weekend, we had 347 inquiries about serving possibilities. That's incredible, isn't that? <laughs> incredible. And so... So encouraged that God is stirring in our church, and if you're one of those people that um, stepped up and said, okay, it's time, I want to find a place to serve, then um, glad that you signed up last week. If you haven't already gotten a phone call, you'll be getting one uh, early this next week, and so glad uh, that, to, to see that and see our church stepping up in that way. Um, we are kicking off a series, as you just saw, called Faith and Logic. And if you've been coming to West Pines the last couple years, you might be saying, man, I feel like we did a series called Faith and Logic not too long ago. And that's true. About 18 months ago, we did a series called Faith and Logic where we talked about these two concepts. Do you have to choose between the two? Do you have to choose between faith and your soul and logic and your mind? Do you have to pick between the two? And what we said is, no, those are actually not mutually exclusive. They go together. And so um, we, we talked through that concept, through that series, and it was one of the most um, re-watched sermon series uh, in our archives. And so we wanted to come back around to it and build on that, kind of do a second installment of Faith and Logic. And so we're kicking that off this weekend. We're going to spend the next several weeks in this series. And so just a heads up, if you know someone in your life, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor who's one of those people that loves to ask tough questions or is a skeptic, this is a great series to invite them to. Because our, our goal is, um, is to ask the tough questions. Not because we have all the answers, but just because we also wanna not be afraid to ask the hard questions. So this is a great series to invite those, those friends and family to. So let me pray, and we will jump into um, part uh, one of Faith and Logic together. Let me pray. Fathers, we open your scripture today. I just ask that you would speak. We sang about how you break down the chains in our life. 
And Lord, we want to see you do that work, that miraculous work inside of our souls. We ask that you do a great work in each of us individually, in our families, in our community, in our city. And Lord, I just pray that you would just uh, be present with us in this time. We just want to hear from you today. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past week on um, Wednesday morning, I woke up with uh, a little bit of a cold. You might be able to hear it in my voice. I woke up with a little bit of a cold on Wednesday, which actually um, I I don't totally hate because I feel like for once I can preach like a real man now. Okay, so I don't totally hate it. But anyway, I I woke up with a cold on Wednesday morning. And um, it's amazing how when you get a cold, then the people around you suddenly become medical experts. It's not like if, if I needed like knee replacement surgery, like they'd say, yeah, just go see a surgeon. You know, they wouldn't offer that. But if it's a cold, they want to offer their advice. And I remember like when I was a kid, if you got a cold, it was like chicken noodle soup and lots of rest. Okay, like that's, that was all we talked about. But like these days, everyone has their own special remedy, and they love, like, they'll, they'll love to tell you about it. They swear by it. Oh, you got to do this. This will absolutely work. Definitively, this is the answer. And so I actually wrote down oh, throughout the week, these are some of the things that I, have been recommended to me in the last couple days. And these first few were not surprises. So, like, I, I, someone recommended <clears throat> vitamin C, zinc, echinacea. Okay, like, all those, like, I expected. But then it got, like, another level down, okay, and, and so I started getting recommended like ginger, honey and cinnamon, peppermint, oregano, garlic root. And I'm thinking, like, are people just looking in their spice cabinets and just pulling stuff out and just putting it in their mouth? Like, is it just like one day, well, let's just try cayenne pepper this time. We'll just see what happens. Like, well, what's happening here? And then, honestly, it just got a little weird. Like, it's like, are we moving into the zone of witchcraft? Okay, like, I'm starting to ask this. Like, people were like, no, what you need is elderberries or astralgus root, okay? And I'm just envisioning, like, they're at home with a cauldron, okay? Like, stirring it all up. I'm like, man, if someone recommends what you need is the left foot of a newt, okay? Like, I'm out at that point, like, if that's what they're recommending. And so everyone has their own, like, remedy that they, they swear by. Like, this is the thing. And so, like, I was asking myself, like, when was it, because some of these I had heard before, like ginger I had heard helps with the cold, and I was like, when did I learn and kind of embrace and accept that ginger was, would help a cold? And I realized that the first time I heard that, I was at Whole Foods, and I had a cold, and I walked up to the smoothie counter, and I asked the kid on the other side of the smoothie counter, do you have any smoothies that are good for colds or juices? And he said, well, yes, this one um, has ginger in it, and so it's good for a cold. And honestly, all it took was this 17-year-old medical expert to say that, and I realized from that moment on, like, I embraced that ginger helped with a cold. So I went ahead and I got that whole food smoothie after I took out a second mortgage on my home. <clears throat> I got that smoothie, and, um, and it, it, it seemed like it, it helped a little bit, and so I embraced that. And so I realized, like, it, took, it takes very little for us to take these, like, home remedies and like be just convinced of it. You say, well, look, you don't understand. Mine was passed down from my grandmother. My, my abuela passed down this, so I, I know it's, it's true, okay? You know, others of you say, no, no, look, I have it on good authority 
There's a blog that I read once, which all blogs are 100% true and trustworthy. Some mom in Milwaukee said, just put Elmer's glue in your tea and it will make you feel better. So I accepted it, okay? And so I realized that we really take very little to be convinced of these things. We tried a couple times. If it worked for us, we're convinced. But I want to just take it a step further. Some of you may say, no, you don't understand. I'm a medical professional. I've actually read the medical journals, But just time out for a second on that, which obviously a medical journal, which would be a much higher authority. But really, unless you were there doing the experiment with them, you're still really taking it on faith. You're still taking it on faith that they're reporting it truthfully and accurately. And so here's the the point of this opening illustration is just simply... We do a lot more with faith. Like faith is a lot more a part of our everyday life than we tend to think. We hear something, we look at the evidence, we feel like it's reasonable, and then we take the faith leap. We do that all the time. Faith is a, a, a part of our regular everyday life. Okay, now maybe you're here and you say, look, I'm not really a church person or you're watching online or you're joining us at the pilot campus and you say, look, I... I'm not really a church person, but I will say I'm so not surprised that you're advocating for faith. I mean, this is a church, um, a place of, a house of worship, a place that worships God and Jesus. And so I'm not surprised that you're advocating faith. And so, um, and and if that's you, I'm so glad you're watching online or or here or at the Pilot Campus. Glad that you've joined us because here's what we want to show that the Bible says. Yes, we should not be afraid of faith, But what we're going to look at through this series and what we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at today is that God also does not want us to dismiss logic. To be a a follower of Jesus, to be a worshiper of God, the requirement is not to unplug our brains. That's not what God wants us to do. In fact, faith and logic work together. They're not poles They're not opposites. They're not mutually exclusive. They actually work together. I want you to take a look at um, Matthew chapter 22. We're gonna start in verse 34. Matthew 22, 34. This is an episode where Jesus has a, a showdown with some of the religious elite. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Here's what it says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, let's just pause there and kind of set the context. Um, If you're new to reading the Bible, let's just talk about these groups. A couple of the groups it talks about is the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These are the religious elite These two groups are typically at odds. They don't have the same belief system, but together they uh, make up the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers in, um, in Israel at the time. And so what happened was the Sadducees came to test Jesus in the previous um, section. The Sadducees had tested Jesus. Why? Well, both the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, even though they're always at odds, have one thing in common. They hate Jesus. They just hate Jesus. 
the vast majority, there's a couple outliers, but the vast majority, they do not like Jesus because he is taking the attention from them. And the crowds are going to them and he's kind of exposing them because what they would do is both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they would, they would look at the Old Testament law that, that God gave to Moses and they would add all of these extra rules to the point that it was oppressive. And they would oppress the neediest in their, in their community. And they're just full of self-righteousness. And so like, they, they really were kind of oppressive in, in how they led spiritually. And so they not only were confronted by Jesus, but they were threatened by Jesus. So the Sadducees had had tried to have a showdown with Jesus. Now, the claim of the Bible is that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. So if you're going to have a battle of wits with God, good luck with that. That's probably not going to go very well for you. And it didn't. The Sadducees were humiliated. The Pharisees then see that, and they're like, this is a really good opportunity for us. Because if we can now step up and we can make Jesus look foolish, not only do we knock Jesus down a peg, we show our superiority to the Sadducees. Do you see how this is working? So they, they bring a lawyer forward, like one of their Pharisees, kind of one of their seasoned guys, and he opens with this question. He says, what is the greatest law? Which seems like a simple question. Imagine like a chessboard. This is just an opening move. The reason why this is probably his question is because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I, I wrote it down here, um, they had looked through the, the Old Testament and they had created 613 laws. They had made it just unbelievably complex. And so their opening move is like whatever Jesus says, we're almost certain like their best um, debater is coming forward. He'll be able to kind of show Jesus why that's not the greatest law. And so that's, this is the opening move, what's going to be a debate where they think they're going to be able to eventually trap Jesus. Okay, but that's not going to happen. Look what, look what Jesus says. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, what's that word? Mind. This is the great and first commandment. Basically, after what, they, what Jesus does is he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most famous phrases in the entire Torah, the entire Pentateuch, the entire first five books of the Bible. It's that section of Deuteronomy is called the Shema and was recited pretty much um, every day by the, by, um, the very religious in, um, in Israel. And so he quotes that. And basically, if you're, if you're the Pharisees, when they say, yeah, Jesus, we'll see how you do on this one. Um, what's the greatest law? Jesus says, okay, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, with all your mind. And like immediately, he gave like the most concise, precise, accurate uh, answer to that question. Like if you're the Pharisees, you're like, Wow, yeah, that's a really good point. That pretty much is the greatest law. Yeah, he, he kind of nailed that, okay? He's basically saying, yeah, you guys just make it all so complicated. It boils down, yes, there's a lot of things that God um, taught and wanted as an outflow of that, but if you want to boil it down, sure, I'll tell you. But then Jesus is going to go on the offensive. Look what he says next. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he was just asked what the first commandment is. He adds one to it. He says, okay, um, yeah, the first one's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But let me go ahead and tell you what the second one is. Love other people like you love yourself. In other words, yeah, I can break it down really simple. It's not that complicated. Um, If you want to distill it down, it's love God and love other people. But here's essentially what Jesus did. It's like they came in, they jabbed, he blocked it, knockout punch. It's done. Why? Because he just exposed, especially by referencing the prophets, all through the prophets, they're constantly uh, renouncing the religious leaders through the generations, throughout the prophets, on the fact that they are bad leaders, they're bad shepherds. They continue to, they teach these laws, but they're so oppressive, so self-righteous, um, they, they don't care about the poor. They just care about themselves and making themselves look good. So he not only answered their question, but he also exposed their failures. And so in, in one moment, Jesus shows his sheer brilliance in answering their question. Love God and love others. But I want to just drill into what Jesus actually said. What does it mean to love God? He says, love God, the first commandment, love God with all your heart. It's all your passion, your emotions, your drive, your ambition. Love God with all your soul, I mean, down to the very core of who you are. It's not a facade, it's not just for show. Um, Down deep, who you are, you love God with all your being. And then he says, and love God with all your mind. In other words, um, he says, no, don't, Don't stop running after God with your mind. Give God your heart, give God your soul, and give God your mind. So often I think um, Christians are, they think if they have doubts or questions or skepticism, they feel like it's wrong to ask those things of God. God, sometimes I doubt, I wonder uh, about this. And God says, no, I'm not afraid of your doubts. What, what, what I, am I threatened by your questions? In fact, look what it says. Let me read this. Um, one, one more verse I want to read to you today. Jeremiah 10, 12. What did the prophets actually say? Look what it says. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Can you just think about what that says for a second? He says, I want you to think about the most complex, most elegant thing in this entire universe that just awes you, that you say, wow, that is unbelievable. I can barely grasp it. God says, I, you know, I invented that. He says, you know, this universe that's taken thousands of years for humans to just begin to understand how it operates I spoke it into existence, God says. I didn't like have to work hard. I didn't labor to do it. I just spoke it and it was there. I breathed it out of my mouth. It's my wisdom. You're, you're beholding the work of my brilliance. He says, do you think I'm afraid of your questions? Do you think I'm threatened by your questions? He says, no, 
Love me with all your mind. Employ your mind. Run after me with your mind. I want to take this a step further. So often, um, there's this narrative in our culture, um, in modern culture, where God and science are at odds. It's like they're versus each other like, like they're rivals. And that's just a false narrative. That's a false narrative that's been recently invented to force people to think like you have to choose between God or science. You don't have to choose between God and science. All science is, is exploring the universe that God created. That's all science is. God and science are not at odds with each other. In fact, I just want to demonstrate that God and science are, are that, that at odds is a false narrative. Like, let me just, let's just go back through history. Let me just um, read to you a list of prominent scientists that uh, were Christians. Listen to this. Copernicus, father of astronomy. Galileo, father of modern science. Francis Bacon, father of empiricism, inventor of the scientific method. Boyle, father of chemistry. Newton, father of physics. Mendel, father of modern genetics. Pa- and then uh, how about some others? Pascal, Joule, Kelvin, Ohm, Pasteur, Kepler. Like all of these, these fathers of science, that modern science is built upon these historic fathers. They all were, they, they loved science. They pursued science because it was an act of worship for them exploring God's universe. In fact, in Kepler's writings, Kepler ends one of his books with this prayer. He actually ends one of his books with a prayer. And he asks God this. He says, graciously to cause that these demonstrations may lead to thy glory and to the salvation of souls. It's Kepler. In other words, he's saying, I I hope that all these scientific observations in this book that God, you'd use it to bring glory to yourself and that, that it would be used for people to find their Savior, Jesus, and find salvation. Does that prove anything? It only proves that this idea that science and God are at odds is a false invented narrative. Historically, scientists, and it's true in modern day, there's plenty of scientists that love God, that love Jesus, and that are scientists because they love exploring God's creation. Let me just give you another example. There's a guy by the name of uh, Antony Flew. And Antony Flew spent most of the 20th century, he just recently died a couple years ago, and he spent most of the 20th century as not only a world-class scientist, but he also was an outspoken atheist. And he actually wrote not only about science, but about atheism. In other words, atheism is in he doesn't believe in God. He would also do debates against other scientists who were theists. And um, over time, his views began to change. And about 15 years ago, he was at a debate to debate a uh, a theist, a, a scientist that believes in God. And he opened the debate saying um, that he had changed his perspective on the existence of God and that he now believed in God. Why, did he have some um, crisis in his life that just kind of broke him? No, he said that for him, the more he dug into the scientific evidence, it drew him to believe in God. Let me read you this quote, he says, because there's something in particular. He says, what I think 
the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the most unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. In other words, he says, DNA is so complicated, it's so precise, like the more we learn about DNA and the human genome, it's so unbelievably complex. He says that, um, he says so unbelievably complex, he's like, I'm convinced that it required, it could not have happened accidentally. And he talks about a particular experiment that convinced him. He said there was a group of scientists in the UK and they took um, a, a whole cage full of monkeys and they put in the cage a typewriter with paper in it. And they closed the cage and they watched it for a month to see what would happen. And the monkeys did all kinds of things with this typewriter. They, you know, sometimes they sat and they just pecked out some letters. Apparently they also used it as a bathroom. Um, other kinds of things that they did with that, okay? As you're hearing this, you're like, I'm actually losing faith in science just hearing about this experiment. And um, they waited for one month to see what would happen. At the end of a month, they had, those monkeys had, over the course of the month, typed out 50 full pages of letters. So every time they'd finish a page, they'd go put another one in, and they had finished 50 full pages of letters. And they say, okay, let's see how many words they accidentally randomly typed. And scouring all 50 pages, not one single word had been accidentally typed. Not even A or I. See, how is that possible? Well, the combination to get A or I would be space, A, space. Or space, I, space. They didn't even successfully do that. They did not get one single letter. So then they calculated all of the possibilities on a typewriter. They ran all of the, the probabilities of getting one single word, and then they took those probabilities and they multiplied it. And they wanted to see how um, feasible would it be to randomly have a Shakespearean sonnet typed up. A Shakespearean sonnet is, I, I wrote it down here so I wouldn't forget, it's 488 letters, that's all. A Shakespearean sonnet, 488 letters. Based on that experiment, based on the odds, what would be the odds of randomly, accidentally typing 488 letters accurately in a row? Um, what would be the, 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 uh, the probability or the possibility? And after their calculations, they came up with this number. Go ahead and, and pull it up. It's 10 to the 690th. Now, if you're like me, you're like, I'm sure that's a big number, but I, I got nothing. Okay, all right. In other words, that's one with 690 zeros after it. Let me show you what that looks like. Go, go to the next um, slide. Okay. That's kind of what that number looks like right there. Except we couldn't fit it all on one slide. So go to the next slide. There you go. You say, am I looking at the same slide? No, you can see the one is gone over there. But did I say two slides? We actually needed three slides to fit 690 zeros. Go to the next slide. There you go. That is the full number. That are the odds of, of randomly, accidentally getting 488 letters, a Shakespearean sonnet, by, by just a random chance. Okay, you're like, okay, how, give me some context. How big is 10 to the 690th power? Let me show you another number. Um, it's 10 to the, to the 80th. Go ahead and bring that number up. Okay, and that number, 10 to the 80th, looks like this. Go to the next slide. There you go. 
Um, that's what 10 to the 80th. That's one with 80 zeros after it. That is the number of particles in the known universe. Like, what does that mean? Like, dust particles? No, 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 like, smaller than that. The things that make up all the dust particles that make up all the planets and, and you know, asteroids and things like that. You're like, you mean like atoms? No, 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 smaller than atoms. Like, quarks and things, okay? Like, that's the number of particles, 10 to the 80th, number of particles in the known universe, their best guess. So can we then agree that's the number of particles that make up all the planets, all the meteors, every particle of dust, everything in the known universe. That a number exceedingly larger than that, 10 to the 690th, can we agree that achieving that by chance is like virtually impossible? That's what Anthony Flew is saying. He's saying if a sonnet is impossible to hap happen, like exceedingly improbable to happen by chance. How could the human genome happen? This is how he says it. Um, he says, if the theorem won't work for a single sonnet, then of course it's simply absurd to suggest that the more elaborate feat of the origin of life could have been achieved by chance. If 488 letters perfectly being together randomly is that astronomical? Then what would it be, like what are the chances of randomly getting the DNA in your body right by chance? Because the human genome, they estimate the number of, if we're to make it letters, the number of letters is not 488. It's three billion. That's the human genome. And if we're saying, yeah, a Shakespearean sonnet's impossible, that's 488 letters then why would we not say that three billion is impossible? There's um, one described that like this. It would take a person typing 60 words per minute, eight hours a day, around 50 years to type the human genome. In other words, a monkey would have to sit down at the typewriter, have the ability to type 60 words per minute, never missing a single letter doing that eight hours a day for 50 years. It, it's just what Flu is saying, like at some point you say the far more logical conclusion is that there was a designer behind it. Let me put it like this. If you got a, a quarter out and you started flipping a quarter and you flipped it up and caught it and you, it says heads and then you did it again and it said heads, Flipped it a third time, it said heads. Fourth time, you got heads. A fifth time, you got heads. At what point in your mind is it more logical that it's not a coincidence, but more logical that either the quarter is rigged or that it's broken? Like at some point you say, like it, it takes more faith to believe, like, like at what, what point is it? Is it like at 10, you're like, okay, this quarter's rigged. 20, a hundred, a thousand, like you have to flip it a thousand, you have to flip it like all week, you have to let every, like all your friends flip it, like at what point do you say it requires more faith to say that it's a coincidence than to say that there is something has happened intentionally to this quarter to make it be the same side every single 
time. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what we're talking with the human genome. So with, with modern scientists and physicists who acknowledge how minimal the, the chances of this happening by accident are, what's their solution? Because these are bright thinking people. If they're refusing to say the most obvious answer is an intelligent designer, if they're refusing to say that, what are, what's their other option? And what they say is something called parallel universes. They say that there are other dimensions of an infinite number of universes. And if you can have an infinite number of universes, you can have basically an infinite number of coin flips. And at some point, you'll have the universe like ours where everything aligns. And I love how um, there's an astronomer from uh, Harvard. His name is Owen Gingrich. And he put it like this. He said, if you believe in infinite universes, if you believe in parallel universes in another dimension, he says, basically, like, how is that having any less faith than believing in something like heaven or hell? Like, you have no evidence of another dimension. You could have no other evidence. He says, essentially, like, at some point, your logic pushes you to faith. And so here's what I, I want you to hear first thing Jesus says, he wants us to pursue him with all of our minds. Push into logic. It will work with your faith. It actually will inspire your faith. But really quickly, Jesus also said, um, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. But then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And um, so often in our culture, we say, yeah, it's, it's great. You can believe whatever you want but it's unloving to try and force that on someone else. So just keep it to yourself. And that's true, that it, it's unloving. You can be very rude about what you believe. Someone could be like just very forceful and arrogant about what they believe. That could be very unloving. But it also could be very unloving to keep it to yourself. I mean, imagine if you, if you had a dear friend that was struggling with a disease and they had decided on a course of treatment but you came across like incontrover incontrovertible evidence that this one cure could bring healing. Like isn't it unloving to keep it to yourself? If you have a, a friend that's in an abusive relationship, I would argue the most loving thing to do would be to risk that friendship and say, look, um, and, and as graciously, humbly, selflessly as you can say, Look, I, I, I know that this might hurt our friendship, but I love you too much not to tell you this. I think you need to get out of this relationship. Like, I think we can agree that that's like the most loving thing. And so Christian, can I challenge you? If, if what you believe is true, if you believe it to be true, the most loving thing you could do is not keep it to yourself, but to share it with the people you love. It's to share with them because what you believe, if what you believe is true, that even though we are so far from God, that God pursued after us, and even though he knows everything about us, and even though we will stand before this brilliant, all-powerful God and face judgment before him, and even though we deserve his wrath and punishment, every single one of us because of our sin, he's offering salvation by the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And that is being offered for free. He's offering that to the world. How could we not, how could it not be the most loving thing to do to share that message? Because, because Christian, what did that message do in your life? Can you think back? 
maybe you think back to that time when you came to faith and you said, man, I was in chains. Man, I had uh, things going on in my life where I was, <clears throat> I was being held down. There was these habits, these lifestyles that I just could not overcome. It was like I was enslaved to them and I wanted to get out, but I just could not get out. And so like I, I was just chained and then I met Jesus and I felt that he broke these chains. He gave me victory. How could you not want that for the people around you? Maybe some of you say, you know, I remember I was, my life was dominated by fear. I had anxiety constantly, like I have to make sure this is okay and this is protected. I've got this in order and if I can't do this, I don't know what's gonna happen and what's gonna happen with I, when I die. I'm gonna try my best, but will I, will I actually be saved? And you say, well, then I met Jesus and I realized that he has my whole life in his hands and he has assured my salvation. I know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die. And, and you saw at that moment that all your life built up on fear had just come crumbling down. How could we not want that for the people that we love? Maybe you say, look, my life was so broken. I was just so, I felt like no one loved me. I was trying to find love in all the wrong places. But man, when I met Jesus, you say, he healed my wounded heart and I realized that he loves me. He knows me more than anyone else and he still loves me. How much he loved me so much he wanted to die for me. I feel cherished by my heavenly father. You found that your, your life was healed. Maybe you say, look, I, I had a life that was hopeless. I was at rock bottom, and then I met Jesus, and I found hope. Christian, how could we not want to share that message of hope with every single person we could? How could that not be the most loving person? You say, look, I just don't know how to do that. Can I just give you like a, a really basic tip? Just start a conversation. When you just see the Lord opening up a spiritual conversation, do this first. Ask them what their thoughts are. Hey, well, what do you think about that? and love them, and honor them, and respect them by listening first. Oh, that's interesting. Well, what brought you to that? And ask them follow-up questions. And then if the Lord opens up, then share what you believe, just what the Lord's done in your heart. Or how about this? Do you know there's something so simple that has so much power when you simply invite someone in to the body of Christ where all the gifts are working. Do you know it's so simple to invite someone to church and we've multiplied services so that we have more space to invite people. It's something so simple like this. All you have to do is tomorrow morning when you see a coworker, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, well, I watched the game and you know, I hung out with some friends. And then if they ask you, well, what'd you do? Oh, I went to church and um, our, or we had this big Saturday night party and um, I went to church this past week and we talked about faith and logic and then you just simply say, man, you should come with me sometime. So simple. All you do is just start by asking, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And so here's how I want to challenge you. Let's go out into our city, especially this fall as we've made more space in our services. I want to challenge us as a church. Have that conversation three times this week. Just simply with three friends, three neighbors, three coworkers, just find three people in your life and just simply say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And when they ask you, you tell them about your church and then you, you say, hey, no pressure, but you're always welcome to come. I'd love for you to come with me. Maybe we go grab uh, breakfast or lunch afterwards or maybe we grab breakfast first or go grab coffee. Just invite them to church. Here's your challenge. Have that conversation three times this week and let's show love to our city. But some of you are here and you would say, um, you know, I'm one of those people that I'm, you know, I've got deep questions and I, I mean, I'm just not sure I believe in all that stuff. If I can't, if I can't see it through empiricism, if I can't see it through experimentation, it's hard for me to believe that. I want to just close with 
a quote by the one who invented, the father of empiricism, who actually invented the scientific method, the one who invented the process that all experimentation is built on, a guy by the name of Francis Bacon. And in one of his books, he wrote this, because Francis Bacon loved God, loved Jesus, he loved science, and he loved the Bible. And he said this, I thought this was so profound. Um, He said it like this, I actually have it here in my Bible. He says, the scripture pronounces the mercy of God to be above all his works. In other words, here's a guy who's just in awe of the creation and loves spending his days scientifically exploring God's creation. And he said, but you know what? I agree with the Bible. The greatest, most unbelievable, most elegant, most gorgeous work of God is that he shows us mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't treat God like he's God. We operate like we're God. We operate like as if God has something to prove to us. God, I'll believe you if you do this, this, and this. If you answer these questions, then I'll believe you. As if we have something to barter with our creator. And what he says, the greatest act in all the universe is that he shows us mercy. And so here's what I just want to extend to you. Those of you watching online at the pilot campus sitting here, maybe, maybe you say, look, I, I struggle to believe in God and Jesus and his death and resurrection. I struggle to believe in miracles and all those things. Well, maybe just today, your first step is let a miracle happen in your soul. Let a miracle of faith where you just choose and say, you know what, I take a step forward and I just say, Jesus, I follow after you. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Take that step of faith. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're watching online or at the pilot campus, just bow your head for a second. If that's you, just simply right there in your seat, just silently make this prayer your prayer to God. Just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I believe. Believe that you saved me by the work of Jesus. I don't have all my questions answered, but I surrender. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.